Well, uh, Sandra Unger, our speaker t today, is the executive director of The Lift, and uh, I've been excited the last couple of months uh, because she's been around here a lot more often because now they have their offices at Woodland Hills Church. It's been cool to see her, really, really cool to see her. So help me welcome up, I think it's doctor, I got that wrong, Dr. Sandra Unger. Whatever. Uh, so <laughs> I have a, a, a command for all of you uh, while she speaks. You have to be nice to her, okay? And here's the reason why. Uh, we only talk about money about once every two years at Wilderness well Church. For this time, uh, Greg Boyd made sure that he was 20,000 miles away. I don't even know. Really a long ways away. And he asked Sandra. He doesn't like her very much. So clearly, all of you clearly. have to be nice to her, all right? right? So amen, amen. You're going to do a great job. How do I get the Paris gig next time, though? That's what I want to know. <laughs> How do I get that gig? Thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here, but we are talking about money, so we definitely need to pray. Let's do that. God, we thank you that you are with us in times of plenty and times of little, and we thank you that you care, and we thank you that you've built a kingdom community of people who can come around us no matter where we're at. But I feel especially today that we want to make sure we're not just meeting you about money, to learn about money, but I want everyone who's here to walk out these doors and remember that no matter what mistakes they've made and what they're struggling with and where they are in life that you care and that you love them and I pray that they would feel unconditionally loved by you and I pray that you would give them your peace that passes understanding. And I pray these things in the powerful and loving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're talking about money and I'm going to start with a couple of very important quotes. First, the U.S. economy ceased to function this week after unexpected existential remarks by the Federal Reserve Chairman shocked Americans into realizing that money is, in fact, just a meaningless and intangible social construct. And that's from our friends at The Onion. <laughs> the Holy Onion. Second quote. This planet has, or rather had, a problem which was this, most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movement of small green pieces of paper, which was odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And this from the holy book of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So today we're talking about meaningless small green pieces of paper. And we're going to talk about why they have so much hold over us, since they're just pieces of paper, and they're meaningless, and they're intangible. Well, no one likes sermons on money, which is why Greg is in Paris. I've sat with you out there before, and generally, sometime during the service, you can think, I need to use the restroom, or I wonder if there's donuts in the lobby, to escape the shame and anxiety that you feel when people talk about money in church. But we are going to do something different today. Instead of shame and anxiety, I've made a decision to go a different direction. Even though shame and anxiety can be so productive. Today, I'm going to tell stories. And the stories that I'm telling come from my upcoming book, which I really always wanted to say, but it's true that Fortress is publishing my book in, uh, I think at the end of this year, the beginning of next, I just finished it. Thank you very much. I'll be going door to door. 
Someone took my title, it had a title, but the subtitle is, Why Do All Our Friends Look Just Like Us? And so it's a question of um, how, what we can learn and how we can grow from living lives of diversity, and it's stories from my east side neighborhood. So today, the stories that we're going to tell from my upcoming book are three cars, two houses, a dress, another house, and a coat maker, and probably some others thrown in for good measure. We'll start with cars. Our son Connor is in his mid-20s. And he has a 2005 Honda Element. It's those square, cute little square cars that go. And earlier this year, he called and said, this, the car doesn't sound right. It's not running. Something's wrong with it. It's going to be horrible. My life's going to come to an end. This is not good. I'm very stressed about it. So we're like, hey, take it to a garage. Find out. He called us back. It's going to be over $600 just to get the crap fixed that has to be fixed. And we, he was like, and I, I know I got a tax return and I could pay for it, but I, I was saving the tax return for something else. And so we had a little sit down and we said, Connor, you have the money to pay for it. And it's just a car and it's just money and your family's safe and you have people who love you and you didn't get in a car accident. So let's just talk about perspective on this. It's horrible. It's going to happen to you a thousand more times in your life. <laughs> well, that wasn't very encouraging. But anyway... <laughs> Every thousand times that it happens, you're going to think it's only money. And he's actually had a change in perspective, recognizing, like we do in our 20s, there are things more important than money. Sometimes maybe in our 40s, we figure, maybe we never figure it out. But the idea is it's only money. This is something that you can overcome. So here's Connor with his broken 2005 Honda Element. $600 repair bill, and he's going to be okay. But here's another story about a car. And this story is about Cortez, also in his mid-20s. And he lives in the apartment in our house. We've known him since he was a young teenager. And he works over at the plaza. Some of you may have seen him over there recently. And in May, he bought a 1998 Toyota Corolla uh, for $300. It had like 1 million miles on it. The odometer was no longer working. And this was a cool car because it had... It was white, but it had a red trunk. And so you just saw him coming. I mean, you saw him going, actually. It was very unique. It was very Cortez, and it was very cool. And this car made Cortez's life workable. He could drive from our house, his apartment on the east side of St. Paul, over to the plaza to work, and it would take him like eight minutes. When he had to take the bus, including the walking part, it could take him 25 minutes. He has a son who lives in North Minneapolis, and sometimes on weekends it could take him two hours and three bus rides to get there. And so it, it, his life was just really spent transporting himself here and there all the time. Half of his time, it seemed like, was spent on the bus. So this car was really important for his freedom and for his life to work. And at the beginning of October, I think it was, at 2 a.m., his car was stolen from the front of our house. And he didn't have this, when you have one million miles on a car, you don't fully insure it. So he didn't have theft insurance. His last $30 was in the glove box. And we have a grainy video from our neighbor's security camera of a man in a white t-shirt driving away with Cortez's car, which is just heartbreaking for him to watch. So a few days later, we got a call from the police. He got a call from the police saying, we found your car, it's been towed to the city lot, you can go take a look. So he gets to the city lot and finds out he's got to pay $140 in towing and storage fees to look at his $300 car. So some friends and all of us, we gather up money together so we could do that. So he goes over and looks at the car and he finds that the battery is missing and the headlights are missing. 
And so he's like, I can, I can buy batteries and a headlight. I mean, it might, they might cost me almost as much as the car, but we can get that done. So he buys batteries and headlights, and he goes back the next day, and then he owes an additional storage fee, because now it's been another day. Hello, let's victimize people who've been victimized. Drives me crazy. Just, this is my sermon today. So he puts in the headlights and the battery, goes to start the car, and fuel sprays all over everywhere because his fuel pump and his fuel line were also taken. I know. So he turned his car, signed his car over to the junkyard and walked out, having spent almost as much money to not have a car as he originally spent to buy the car in May. So do you think I sat down with Cortez and said, Cortez, your family is safe and you didn't have a car accident and people love you and it's only a car, it's only money. Do you think I said that to him? You are right, I did not say that. So that's car story two. So we have Connor with his $600 repair bill for the Honda Element, and we have Cortez with the million mile Toyota Corolla that basically went to crap. And then we have a story about my friend Dee and a car. Now Dee has six kids, and she saved up her money, $2,000 to buy a car, and at the end of our street is a little neighborhood used car dealership, and so she went down there, and she got a 1995 Lincoln Town Car. I think it's a car that you're supposed to drive like this. Am I right? Am I right? I don't, I don't look good doing that. It's, it's not me, but, it, but she looked good doing it, and with the six kids in the car with her. The whole family fit in, it had white wall tires, and it had the thing that the kids loved the best was that it had a radio that you operated from the steering wheel, which was just, you know, for 1995, pretty forward thinking. So a few days, just a few days, literally, after she got the car, she was pulled over late at night in Minneapolis, and the cop said, your plates do not match the car that you're driving, get in the back of the squad car. So there's my friend Dee sitting in the back of the squad car, and she had paperwork in her explanation. She said, here, I bought this car. Here's my paperwork. And the officer said, I believe you. That's fine. Here's three tickets that you're going to have to deal with in court. And the tickets for driving a car without a registration, driving with a stolen plate, something else. And he believed her, he said, but she's going to have to fight it out in court. So they towed the car to a local lot and dropped her at a gas station at midnight in Minneapolis, and she had to get a $30 cab ride home. So in order to straighten out this mess, Dee had to take a bunch of time off work, hour-long bus rides back and forth to Minneapolis, and the car was in the impound lot, and as long as the tickets weren't cleared, she couldn't have access to it, and it was eventually scrapped, and she lost her camera and a full tank of gas and birthday presents, and other personal items in the car. So here she is, out $2,000, and she still has no car. So here's interesting, the justice system at work. The judge said to the car dealer who had ripped her off, you can take a year or so to pay Dee back the $2,000 you took from her. So you can't go buy a car with the promise of some payments from an unethical car dealership. So what happened over the next year is he would send her $100 and $200, and every time he, she got that money, she couldn't buy a car with it, but she sure could buy food and clothes and pay the rent. And so at the end of just a little over a year, she had received the full $2,000, but she did, still didn't have a car. And the car dealer was never ticketed. It's still operating down the street from our house. And the only thing he was required to do was pay back money that he had unethically taken from Dee for a car that he did not have title to. 
So I sat down with my friend D and I said, D, it's only money. I did not sit down with my friend D and say, it's only money. Because with the, in the case of both Cortez and D, live, their lives were radically disrupted and changed by bad situations involving a car. And they were both victimized. And some of you here are Connor. You have some bills, you don't want to spend the money to fix the car, whatever, but you're, you're going to be okay. It's just annoying. It's happened a thousand times. And some of you here are Cortez or D, where stuff happens to you and it basically throws everything out of whack and wrecks the, the barely functioning balance that you have in your life. So all of us need to rethink our views toward money and the priority it has in our life, but we all need different solutions. It looks very different from each of us. And I will tell you a story about just how different money can look for people across the spectrum. When our daughter Hadley was a freshman in college, she made a friend, uh, a very good friend, and we got invited by this friend's family to come and spend a weekend at their home on the ocean, which was intriguing. And so that when we took her back to college her sophomore year, we all went to the home on the ocean, which happened to be also a $10 million mansion on the ocean. It was, it was just wall after wall of windows, all new furniture. It was absolutely beautiful. There were two kitchens. There were several staircases, a game room, like nine bedrooms. And it was just truly amazing. I felt like I was in a magazine. And it turned out that this was one of three homes that they owned. And also they were friends with Martha Stewart. So I thought about the fact that these really thick bath towels that I was using, they were like this thick with monogram, and they were white, and really, who has white bath towels? How, do you, how are they perfectly white? I live in a different universe. So, and I thought, maybe I'm using the bath towel that Martha Stewart used. You don't know. You don't know if you're using the bath towel. That, who cares about Martha Stewart? But it's interesting, right? So we spent a weekend at one of their three homes, pretending like we belonged there, um, trying not to be too tacky and ask dumb questions and eat with their food hanging out of our mouth. And we got through it. I think we got through it okay. So that was a good weekend. But it was also a little bit disconcerting as we flew back to our home in the east side of St. Paul. We were sort of pondering, that's just a lot of money. That's three houses, and one of them at least was $10 million. And... I don't know what to do with that. I, I feel like I shouldn't like these people, but that's not fair. So it was really, I was really struggling with it. And then I started struggling even more because the day after we got home, my friend Dee again of the car story, you'll get used to hearing about Dee. She said, we are, I just found out that my landlord hasn't been paying his mortgage, even though I've been paying the rent and we're going to be evicted shortly. And then she said, I also um, got a notice from XL. I've gotten too far behind on my utility payments and so they're going to shut off my power in two days. So I think like my head basically exploded because you can't go from the mansion on the ocean and $10 million in towels that weigh more than your furniture to a place where your very good friend with six children who's already been victimized in various ways, is going to be thrown out of her house by a landlord not paying his mortgage, and also her power is about to be turned off. This is, I can't, it's like you get the bends or something going between the two. It's too far of a difference. 
And so again, I can't sit down with D and say, it's only money. It's just a house. It's just power. It's just your six kids. It's just your life. Don't worry about it. You can't say that. What do you do when one person has way too many small green pieces of paper and another person has far too few? While most of you do not have $10 million mansions on the ocean, if you do, I'm available afterwards to talk about it. But I have a, another kind of story that's uh, on a much smaller scale that most of us can relate to better. And it's a story about me being greedy. So I'm sure you'll appreciate it. Uh, I was out to lunch with Dee. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, she's a real person. I was out to lunch with Dee and she said, hey, I paydays in two days and I'm a little short on food, so could I borrow some money? So I had $15 in my wallet, so I gave her the $15. And then we finished our lunch. And then the next day, I arrived, arrived early to an appointment. And I went into a store that was right there. And, I, and there was a clearance rack. And I found a dress on the clearance rack that was $20. And how exciting is that? It's really exciting. So I thought, should I try this dress on? Um, should I or shouldn't I? Do you think I should try the dress on? I feel like I'm, I'm frugal. And so I am morally required to try this dress on because it's on sale for $20. And so I did try the dress on, and do you think I bought it? Yeah, yeah and you're judging me for it already, <laughs> I can tell. Because I was justifying, I'm saying, hey, I could buy this dress, and then I could just not have D pay me back the $15 loan. And I know that all you judges are saying, yeah, you could also take the $20 and help D buy more food for her six children. So this is the tension that we live in. I had so many small green pieces of paper that I could buy a dress I don't need. I do not need a dress. And Dee is still trying to feed her family. I always hated that dress after I bought it. I think I, I literally wore it like three times and gave it away because I don't want to have greed hanging in my closet. You know, every time it's like, oh, get, get out of the way. You're just reminding me I'm a horrible person. So I got rid of it. Anyway, it's a hard moment when you face yourself in that way with your small green pieces of paper and realize this is how I feel in control of my life. This is how I get to decide what to do with my small green pieces of paper. And let me throw a few at D to assuage my conscience and then I'm going to buy a dress that I don't need. And this is the tension we live in, those of us who have resources. And we have to pay attention to that tension. I have this piece of art hanging in my house. <clears throat> It'll come up on your screen. I'm not sure if, if you can tell what it says. It says, of course, I want to save the world. But I was hoping to do it from the comfort of my everyday life. I want to be a person who buys dresses she doesn't need while calling for the world to change. I want to be generous without it costing me anything. When you get to that place where you see yourself up close and what you're really dependent on, that's the time when you say, I need a course correction. And I don't know about you, but I need them all the time. And that's what we're talking about in this series, is how can we make some changes in our life that will take us to a new direction with different outcomes, the kind of outcomes that Jesus is looking for. So we're talking about spiritual disciplines. That's one of the ways that we grow spiritually. And they help make us people of substance. And if that sounds kind of boring, I can attest to the fact that they help us become people of substance who are joyful. And this is for real. There's inward disciplines, and these are disciplines where we give up something 
that is keeping us from becoming all God wants us to do in order to give space for God to work. And these would be things like when we give up food or we give up TV for a time. And then we have outward disciplines, which are things that we intentionally do to create space for God to work in our lives and to shape us into the person he wants us to be. What I've found is that particularly as it relates to money, instead of thinking, what spiritual discipline can I do to become more financially responsible, I just think, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try even harder. I'm going to write down everything that I'm spending, and then I'm going to judge myself, and then I'm going to try even harder, and I'm going to do better. And I basically am willing myself to be more financially responsible. But I think, my experience has been that rather than launching this full frontal attack on use, and trying to use our own willpower to change, the disciplines are what we use to put us in this place as broken people who are humbled before God and say, please transform me. I'm not doing good with the money thing. Trying really, really, really hard has little impact and it's not usually lasting. But there's an inward discipline we can practice called simplicity, where we say, for a time, I'm not going to spend money on X, Y, Z, or I'm not going to buy anything I don't need for this amount of time. And so we spend less. But what I want to focus on is the outward discipline of generosity, where we intentionally give our resources away. Both of these practices put us in a place for God to transform us and to break the power of the small green pieces of paper. Jesus speaks to these both, I think, in Matthew 6. Do not store up riches for yourselves here on earth where moths and rust destroy and robbers break in and steal. Instead, store up riches for yourselves in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and robbers cannot break in and steal. For your heart will always be where your riches are. I think the first half of this verse is about simplicity. Don't store up riches here. Don't store up treasures. The second half of the verse is about generosity. Store up those treasures in heaven. Well, what does that mean? What's a treasure in heaven? And I think a treasure in heaven is when we give away some of our earthly treasures and where we're, we practice generosity. Those are the treasures. So we think about generosity, and I had never in my life thought about the, the reality of generosity in a place of scarcity. So I, I never thought, I'm going to go to a neighborhood where people don't have enough small green pieces of paper, and I'm going to learn about generosity by the people who have not enough small green pieces of paper. It doesn't seem that a situation of scarcity would breed generosity. But I've been 15 years now living on the east side, and I have a lot of friends and neighbors who don't have tons of small green pieces of paper. And seriously, these are the most generous people in the world. It's absolutely amazing. So Cortez, he of the car with the red trunk, when he was a teenager, he and his friends, which were also D's sons, but I don't want to keep saying these names. So these kids in our neighborhood, they'd all get together to go to a movie, and they, somebody didn't have $10. And so they'd all say, oh, I have five, I have three, I have two. Okay, we get this guy in. And then they would go to McDonald's, and they'd say, oh, so-and-so doesn't have enough money. And so they'd all pool their money or share their chicken nuggets or whatever. And then mom would be like, hey, you guys have jobs, and we can't quite make the rent. And they'd be like, here, here's 50 bucks. What? teenager helps with the rent. In the world I come from, that did not happen. And I was just amazed because they didn't complain. And they all knew when they were helping somebody get into the movie that next time it would be their turn. And they just had this recognition that if we all pool our small green pieces of paper, we can make this work. So, amen. Amen to them. 
So um, Dee, <laughs> it's kind of starting to be funny. She, she seriously exists. Um, she, a while ago, had a car problem. She needed to get repaired. And so I talked to her a little while later, and I said, hey, what is going on with your car? And she said, well, I, I have a friend who needed her car repaired, and so I, did, I helped her out. And I'm like, what? That is not how money is supposed to work. Why are you sharing and being generous? No, I didn't say that. I said, tell me more about that. And she said, my friend can't get to work on the bus, and I can. And I can also borrow my kid's car. And so it just made sense that this month I'll take care of her car, and next month I'll take care of mine. What a humbling thing. This is generosity I've never seen in my life, and it's so often from people who just don't have a lot. And when I was growing up, I don't know what your messages about money were when you were growing up, but my messages in my family were, don't give your money away, don't share, don't loan money to your siblings. And so if we were all, I had five siblings, if we were all going to go to the movies and somebody didn't have money, we were like, have fun watching TV at home alone. Because we just weren't taught this way of sharing and pooling resources and having money. I did not help my parents pay the mortgage. It did not happen. And it's interesting because beyond just the families that I know, research across the country shows that the wealthiest Americans, and that would be the people in the top 20%, contribute on average 1.3% of their income to charitable causes. Compared with the bottom 20% who donate... 3.2% of their income to charitable causes. So 2.5 times as much. I just want to say, if you reverse that, because of the amounts we're talking about, we could have a revolution. And Jesus, way back in the day, saw this exact thing going on. In Mark, we find Jesus sitting near the temple treasury. He watched the people as they dropped in their money. Many rich men dropped in a lot of money. Then a poor widow came along and dropped in two little copper coins worth about a penny. He called his disciples together and said to them, I tell you that this poor widow put more in the offering box than all the others. For the others put in what they had to spare of their riches, but she, poor as she is, put in all she had. She gave all she had to live on. Here's the disciples learning about generosity from a poor widow. You realize that they walked around with Jesus all day every day. And they're learning an important lesson from a powerless, penniless widow. God teaches us through people who aren't resourced in ways that the world values, but are resourced in so many more ways, like being generous, generosity. I've learned more about money and generosity from Dee and my neighbors, who often doesn't have money, than I have ever learned from anybody, ever. Now, those of you who know me and have heard me speak may be thinking, oh, here she goes off on her help the poor rant. <laughs> Because I do have that rant, and it is important, but that is not what I'm talking about today. So hear me carefully. Here's what my point is. When we give money, we usually focus on the recipient, on what is the organization or the person that I'm giving money to, and that is as it should be. But I'm asking you today to be selfish about your generosity for just a moment and think what generosity could do for you. Now, I'm not asking you to be selfish like the rich people putting a lot of money into the temple treasury while Jesus watches. Not selfish like, I'm going to be generous so I look good. Not that kind of selfish. But it's more the kind of turning inward that says, who am I in relation to money and generosity? Selfish like, even if it's hard, 
I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do the hard work of generosity because I believe it will make me a better person and I want to be a better person and I want to be more like Christ. And you know what? Generosity will do that for you and it will not be the easy kind of generosity. Generosity changes us in pretty profound ways. And we weren't always taught these lessons growing up about how to be generous. You know, in my family, it's like, have a good time having no money at home. That wasn't a lesson of generosity. But all of us actually, or most of us, were probably taught two stories that were related to money that get to this issue of generosity. So the first story, honey, we're in church today, and you saw that choir. And those children, a lot of them are orphans. They're from Africa, and they're raising money here because a lot of the people in their village don't have enough food. And this is a story of empathy. And I was told these stories. We want to be empathic. And then you, the, the kid looks at the mom and says, Mommy, let's give all our money to these children so that they can eat. That's a story of empathy. That's the first story that we're told as children. The second story that we're told goes like this. Honey, you see how the Johnsons are moving out of their home and they're taking your friends away from here and it's because they did not keep up with their bills. They were not responsible and they didn't pay their rent and now they have to leave and you better take care that that doesn't happen to you ever. And this is a story of fear. And the child's response is, Mommy, I promise I'm going to save all my money and I'm not going to give it away and I'm going to be really responsible. I won't be too generous. So we have a story of empathy. Let's give all our money to the people who can't eat. And we have the story of fear. Let's not give our money away because what if we can't eat someday? Empathy and fear. Empathy versus fear. We carry these stories around with us for our entire lives and they compete. And they make us say things like, I feel really bad for you, but if I help you too much, then I'm going to end up destitute. And so if we can afford to give $10, we give 5 I want to tell you a story about empathy and fear that really impacted my husband's and my life. Dave is my husband. And about 12 years ago, we were part of a story that featured empathy and fear. So my friend D, as you may have heard... <laughs> We both moved into our houses at the same time across the alley from each other. And Dee was having some health problems and she was working really hard and she didn't have a car. And she had six kids, a single mom. And we got to know her and uh, really started to care about her. And then she got evicted from this house and was really struggling. And so we found, helped find her another house to rent. It was a few miles away. We stayed in connection. She was part of the lift. And um, it was really disruptive when she had to move because kids had to change schools and it cost a lot of money to move. And then that house didn't work out. And over the course of the next, I think, year, year and a half, she had to move two more times. And we saw the physical struggles and the financial struggles and the kids struggling, moving school to school. And we had empathy for Dee. We said, this is not okay. These are people we love and people we care about, and this is not okay. And... Neither of us, Dave or I, remember which one said it first, but one of us said, hey, what if we bought a house that Dee could live in and rent from us at a rate she could afford? Fear! The fear story comes! Everything about fate! Because we have children that have to go to college in a little while, and we don't have a lot of money, and we don't have
have trust funds? And what if we can't eat and we're destitute and we get evicted like the Johnsons? The fear stories flooded. We care about Dee deeply. We love her children, but we have to protect our own. This was the argument inside our heads that was going on. We thought long and hard and we vacillated between empathy and fear. And a lot of people thought it was a really bad idea. We talked to friends and family and they told us things to make us afraid. You do have college coming up. And they made the list and we ultimately decided to do uh, what some people said was the dumb thing um, and buy a house. And so we looked around with Dee and her kids for a house that worked and we found one that was two blocks away from our house. And um, on the day of closing, this is a cool God story, on the day of closing, when we're still a little bit freaked out, um, we, Dee got a letter that day in the mail from Section 8, which is housing assistance, that she'd been on the waiting list for five years, saying, you get Section 8 now. And it was like, I know. It was like God saying, do not fear. And then the Section 8 was going to pay half of her rent, and then we said, you cover the other half as much as you can. Now, it was tough, because fears about money go deep, right? So it was constantly there, and as the kids got older, it's like, college is coming! And the fear was there, but here's the deal. Dee lived in this house for three years, which is the longest in her life that she's lived in one place. And I didn't know this until recently, but she had a different kind of risk going on than we did. We had the risk of finances. And I've invited Dee here to come up and talk about her risk. See, she does exist, I told you. Here's Dee. <laughs> you brave woman. All right, so this is my friend Dee of the cars and the houses and the generosity and the variety of things. So. So let's share. Here, Dave and I are like, ah, oh, this is so scary. We have to worry about money. And what was Dee thinking? I was on the fear side. I, there was no trust, first of all. Um, I didn't know if I could trust them. And I was fearing that I, I may possibly hurt a friendship, that, the, that Dave and Sandra are my friends, and they're showing me this love that I truly didn't understand at the moment, and I thought maybe that I would jeopardize that. But, like if you couldn't pay the rent or something. Exactly. Like, so you, you thought, and this is a common thought, that our relationship could be really damaged if we didn't work the small green pieces of paper out. Yes. That was, this, the relationship really was predicated at this point on you doing the right thing with your small green pieces of paper. Was, That's what it felt like. I was scared to take that risk. I okay. didn't want to I didn't wanna lose, lose people who cared about me and my family, and I thought that that's what I thought about the most. Now, when we first met across the alley, were you like, oh, there's a happy white lady, I'm gonna run over and make friends. Was that what you were thinking? No, I told my kids, stay away from her, I don't know her. <laughs> don't eat her cookies. <laughs> Seriously, I, I would make cookies and get popsicles, and this is, she's telling us later, the kids were like, hey, there's a happy white lady across the alley, and she's like, do not go over there. <laughs> So we came a long way in a short time. And what was your ultimate takeaway from this house? Oh, I, well, first of all, I have to say that in that process and after and, and being there, I, there was this love I had never felt from friends, this, this truly godly love that you don't, you don't understand until you, until you see um, someone making sacrifices and taking risks for you. And so I... I was not 
sure what that was. And as time went on, I began to see that this, this transforming love that, was, that our friendship had. And a lot of the people that were a part of the lift also went through that with us. We just transformed. And I, I grew in ways I never thought I would in my kids as well, as well as her family and, and a lot of my friends at the lift. Still friends? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So she makes me look way better than I am because I am not Mother Teresa. I'm not telling the story because I want you to be like me. I'm telling the story because I want you to do better than me, to be like Jesus, to answer that call, to not be afraid. I'm telling you, the fear didn't go away. I'd be thinking sometimes, if we didn't buy that house, then we could blah, 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 whatever it was that week. The fear didn't go away. But here's what I learned. Through 12 years of owning this house, our family never skipped a meal. We've had all of our basic needs met. We put two kids through college. We've taken vacations even. We've never suffered really for one minute because we bought the house. There are things we had to cut back on. There are things we had to be more frugal about. And yes, our net worth has decreased because buying real estate on the east side is not one of those wise investments. But if we're looking for kingdom value, if we're looking for profound transformation, you cannot compare this to anything. In my life, there's nothing I compare it to. Because in kingdom value, we learn to trust God at least a little bit more with our small green pieces of paper. We learn to love more deeply and receive love. We modeled something for our kids that's been transformational for them. And Dee learned that she was loved in a way that had hands and feet attached to it. We both learned that we could be friends across so many lines of difference. You can't compare that kind of learning with any amount of small green pieces of paper. Amen. Now, we've had a lot of different people through the house since Dee moved, and it's really been horrible sometimes. <laughs> we still own that house. And so we've had people in it who are breaking all the windows and screens and not mowing the lawn, and one of them spray painted on the back of the house. Um, just crazy parties, the police called. It's not our favorite thing. We don't love it, but we're still learning. Oh, also I wanted to say, Mookie, who works for facilities here, some of you may know him. He, okay, we love Mookie. Mookie lives in the house right now with a few friends who are, they're learning, you know, how to live on their own. And so if you see him, let him know that the rent is due Wednesday. <laughs> Seriously, wouldn't it be awesome if like a hundred people saw him and said, don't forget to pay the rent. He's going to kill me. <laughs> Just because something is hard, even though there's just crap going on over there sometimes, that does not mean we made a mistake. It does not mean that we shouldn't do it. Because really, that's what God uses to shape us. The thing that he shapes us with is difficulty and hardship. Connor learned more about faith and money because he had to pay $600 to get his car repaired. He wouldn't have learned that lesson if he didn't use car repaired. We wouldn't have learned this lesson about generosity and faith if we hadn't taken the step out and had a bunch of crap go wrong. That's what happens. Just because something's hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Amen. Amen. In fact, C.S. Lewis said... If our charities do not pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. We need to be pinched and hampered. 
Whatever it is, whether God uses a house or a car or a neighbor or whatever, we need to be pinched and hampered. So did Dee gain more or did we? She gained stable housing. We grew our empathy and decreased our fear. We learned to have faith. Everybody won in this situation, especially when you line it up with kingdom priorities. God wants to use these small green pieces of paper to teach us so much, but we have to open our hands. We have to put them before him and say, use these, I give you these. Now, I want to offer a caveat, which is I'm not a financial advisor, and so I'm not telling you to go give all your money away instead of paying your rent. I am not saying that, but I am a spiritual advisor, and it is my advice spiritually to do what you need to do to break the power the small green pieces of paper have over you. And one way to do that is to be generous and sometimes even beyond what you think you can afford. I have one final story, and unfortunately it's not about D. Sorry. This is a story about you and your family. And your family is in the coat making business. You've been making coats for years and years, and you make raincoats and plain coats and winter coats and warm coats and spring coats, all kinds of coats, all colors. And your family's been doing this for a long time, and it's been very successful. But you have always extra coats, and so they pile up in your house. So right now, your whole basement is filled with coats of every color. And now your dining room, actually, it's getting a little embarrassing because the dining room starting to, to get a lot of coats in it. And when you go out to the park or the grocery store, you look around and you're like, why do some people not have any coats? And why are some people wearing tattered, ugly coats when I have all these really nice coats that my factory makes? So you have too many coats, but you don't want to shut down your coat factory because then people would lose their jobs. And you really care about your employees and you don't want them to lose your jobs. So you just keep making more coats. So one day a friend comes over to your house and you're kind of embarrassed because you can't get the front door open easily because there's so many coats now stacked in the front hall. So you're kind of digging it out and you pry open the door and your friend comes in and says, why do you not give some of these coats away to the people who don't have any? And you say, well, I'm still trying to figure out why they don't have coats. And your friend says, who cares? They're just coats. By the way, your friend's name is Jesus, who says in Luke 3, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. My thought today is that we could all put these small green pieces of paper to work for the kingdom, and also we will be transformed in the process, and that will be awesome. Let's pray. God, help us to open our hands. Help us to give you our stuff. Help us to not get our identity from our stuff. Help us to care about those who don't have enough. Help us to be grateful if we do have enough. Help us not to assume that everybody has the same experience we do. Help us to not judge. We just want to have open hearts. And we want to say, what's the point if we're not listening to your spirit? You will transform us. You will change us. You can make the world a better place, but not if we're all sitting in the comfort of our everyday life. So Jesus, pull us out of that. Show us that when we do scary things, you show up and you change. 
Help us to be wise. Surround us with wide, wise voices. Help us to learn to discern your voice. And help us to just sort of create a party around being generous people who throw out small green pieces of paper that used to be meaningless and say to God, use them, they're yours. We pray these things in the transforming and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks and come up for prayer if you need it.